so the vice president and the treasury secretary is it treasury secretary i think so announced billions for black minority businesses at freedman's bank form okay let's get into this because from my understanding it wasn't just blacks it was well yeah so i did say minority businesses okay so when you say minorities see what usually happens is everybody else is brought in which means black people don't get a lot when it's black people that actually need the most plus you're talking about freedman bank um which is something that comes from what is it the restructuring uh period is that how you say it is it restructuring 1865 to 1877 I remember the date <laughs> um, so yeah alright so let me read this article real quick and then I'm gonna let you listen to the video cause that's like a I'm not gonna let you listen to the whole video but like a, a couple uh, parts black owned businesses suffered disproportionately during the pandemic with ownership rates seeing a 41% drop between February and April 2020 alright first of all that is terrible because we already don't have a lot of businesses. Let me say that again. It's terrible because we already don't have a lot of businesses. Hold up. And then a lot of black people are actually still out here supporting other businesses over their own businesses, which is insane to me. That is pure insaneness. But that's what's happening. Hold up. Then, hold on. I need to talk about this real quick. What was that guy name? Give me two seconds. Give me two seconds. Uh, what is his name? So, yeah, okay. Travis Hunter. So, there were actually a lot of black people talking about this dude was crazy for going to HBCU. He's the number one um, overall pick, or like the number one, not pick, but the number one in the recruiting class um, coming out of high school. And there are actually a lot of people. You know, you, you know white people is going to act up, right? Because this is actually messing with their business, right? So say if more black people start following what Travis just did, that could change everything. That means more money is going to come into the black community. They don't want to see that. But it's insane to me that so many black people have been conditioned to make sure that they lose, like to make sure that their own community lose. And black parents aren't protecting their child. White people have managed to, let's just say, well, you can call it so many different things. You can say brainwash, um, Stockholm Syndrome. Um, black people have a lot of issues. Uh, <laughs> and it, it isn't every black person, but there's a lot of black people that, they got some real issues. Um, but... To see that some black people are actually 
attacking Travis Hunter for joining Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders needs to get other football players to actually do this, to actually become coaches like he did at an HBCU. And to bring in other black football players, even though I'm not really a big fan of football. Um, one, because I think we need our black people. And football causes CTE, which is basically going to make sure that you're not able to function at your highest level. And so I'm not the biggest fan of football. But if you're going to play football, why not do it in a way that actually helps out your community? But so many black people will talk to dislike their own community. It's insane to me. Pure insaneness. But anyway, let me get back to it. Because this, this particular show is not supposed to be about Travis Hunter. I think I'm about to do like a whole new episode. Specifically for Travis Hunter. Um... Because I think it's very important. And I like what Deion Sanders is doing. When I was younger, I was a big Deion Sanders fan. They had like some game, uh, I forgot what it was called. I don't remember if that was Sega. Was that Sega? Super Nintendo? I think it was Sega, matter of fact. But it was a football game, right? And the one player I always liked to play with was uh, Primetime. Um, and that was when I was younger and I didn't know anything. Um... So, yeah, if you're going to play football, do it for yourself. Do it for your community. Don't do it for yourself. I said that wrong. <laughs> do it for your community. There is no I in team. There is no I in team. Um, let me get back to the article, though. Um, also, black people, y'all have, or football players, y'all have all these millions of dollars. You should pair it together and start your league. Start a league. You can do it. Believe in yourselves or go find other black people that is good at business and do it. Um, I'll get back to that later. <clears throat> I'm going to get back to this article. Um, where are we? Vice President Kamala Harris and Treasurer Secretary Janet Yellen headline the annual Fred Freeman's Bank Forum. Tuesday announcing $8.7 billion in federal funding for financial institutions serving minority and underdeserved small business owners. Uh huh. Okay, okay. So that is awesome. That is purely awesome. Alright, so did they actually already do it? I, I gotta check into that. Is that a, uh, Announcing federal funding for under the Alright, so the sizable investment announced by the Office of the Vice President and U.S. Treasury Department is a part of a $12 billion secured last year by Harris when she was still a U.S. Senator, along with Senators Cory Booker and Chuck Sumer, Mark Warner, and U.S. Rep. Maxine Waters. Okay, chairwoman of the House Federal Ser uh, Federal Services Committee. I'm drinking coffee right now. So good. This is the Starbucks brand. Man, it is like the best. Anyway, 
the Jobs and Neighborhood Investment Act was intended to support community financial institutions that serve low to moderate income and minority communities, as well as respond to the significant loss of Black-owned businesses and unemployment during the pandemic. Black-owned businesses suffered disproportionately during the pandemic, with ownership rates seeing a 41% drop. I say, wow. Um, I say, wow. Between February and April 2020, the largest rate of any racial group, according to a report by the U.S. Uh, House Small Business Committee. Not to mention, black-owned businesses are 20% less likely than white-owned businesses to obtain a loan from a large bank. Well, that's like a, duh. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to do that. Um, so, let me see. So, we're talking about black businesses right now. Um, since becoming the nation's first black Vice President Harris has worked with Secretary Yellen to implement funding programs through community development financial institutions and minority developed institutions to ensure that small business owners and undeserved communities can access capital in order to start and grow their businesses. In America today, deep racial disparities continue to hold people back from achieving all they can, Vice President Harris said in her remarks in the form held it uh, at the Treasury Department. Today, the wealth gaps persist. Today, the home ownership gap persists. Access to capital is unequal. Black entrepreneurs are three times more likely to report a, a lack of access to capital negatively, negatively affects their business, uh, their profit margins. I believe that the actions we are taking, hold up, let me see. And must take to address these disparities will define our nation's strength and economic strength in the 21st century. Okay, okay. You're sounding good. You're sounding good, um, Miss Vice President. Uh, should I say Madame Vice President? How do y'all, how do we do that? I think it's Madame. Um, let's see here. Harris emphasized the historical context of America's racial wealth gap as it relates to enterprise by highlighting the atrocities of the Tulsa Race Massacre, in which an angry white mob decimated the once-thriving Greenwood Business District, also known as Black Wall Street. Indeed, indeed. Um... I wanted to read my book. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I talked about Black Lost reading my book. Um, it was something else that just is, damn, I just lost the thought. It was just there. Um, it was designed to be a thriving community within, oh, a lot of some other black stuff. We should talk about all the black the stuff that has happened to black people in this country. Because it wasn't just Greenwood. It's been way more other um Black cities, communities that have been destroyed. Um, there's black communities that are underwater, like literally underwater. Um, so there is so much we could like discuss. I could do a whole book on just everything that has happened to black people. Like it's so much. It's incredible. And a lot of younger black people don't even know. That's why you will see them supporting 
white companies before they support their own black companies. Um, so it's pretty insane. Uh, a lot of stuff that's going on. Uh, let me continue. It was designed to be a thriving community within a community and economy in which black people supported one another, lifted one another up, and modeled excellence in which black people could determine their own future. Some of us refer to this as self-determination, to put equity firmly at the center of our economic policy, said Harris. I think if Vice President Harris was to play this correctly, she could turn around her, because um, I think she got like a, like a bad, like, I forgot what they call it. Is it liking? Like the poll for her liking among people. Likeability, I think is what it's called. Uh, Likeability poll. Let me see. If she was to play this right, she could turn it around. Favorability is what I'm seeing from Gallup. Um, let me put in... If it's super bad, I ain't gonna say it out loud. <laughs> If it's super bad. Um, let's see if I can find it. Let me see. That's uh, LA Times. It says December. So, I don't think it's like, it's not the best um, rating, but I don't think it's like, or maybe that is considered, I don't know what's considered like super bad for uh, presidential and vice presidentials. Uh, well, I suspect that's pretty low. But I'm not going to say it out loud. Uh, if you want to find out, go look it up. <laughs> so, I look, just, I'm looking at another one on another uh, site real quick. Trying to get a, like an average. What is everybody saying about... Uh, let me see here. So, a little out there saying the same thing. Uh, very... Very favorable, very unfavorable. Okay, so okay, uh, realclearpolitics.com. I've heard of it. Let's see, I've never used it before, though. So this is Carmela. Uh, 10, 16, 12, 17. Trying to see, is this 21? Here we go, 21. Okay, the polling data. I'm trying to make sure this is a political morning consult. This is 2001. Top 2022 Senate races. So, whoever this is, I think this is uh, 
Okay, so it got a, basically a bunch of different outlets on here together. And they're doing the favorables and unfavorables. Yeah. Okay. Um. So one way that I'm sure President Biden and Vice President Carmela Anderson, I mean, uh, Carmela Harris, <laughs> I almost called her Anderson. Sorry about that. Uh, Madam Vice President. Um, they need to pass something for the base, like to energize the base. Right now, the base is not energized. A lot of black people feel that the, the Democrats have kind of just not passed anything for them, really. Um, but if they actually did, I don't know if they actually passed this, what this article is talking about. I got to look it up. But let's say if they do pass this, this would be a start in the right direction. Um, well, but if you're giving it to minorities, see, minorities is not black. And usually when you say minorities, that includes white women. Um, let me, matter of fact, let me look it up. What does the United States consider minorities? Let me see, can I find out minorities? So, a minority person is a citizen of the United States who is an African American, Hispanic, Native American, Asian Pacific, or Asian Indian. Um, I just read that from the census.com. I'm not sure if that's the right site. Let me keep looking real quick. Is there a .gov somewhere? Uh, I wanted to see what's like the definition that the government goes by. Okay, I see it. Um, I just found a .gov. Racial ethnic minority agency for healthcare research and quality. Uh, not the one I'm looking for. Yeah, they're talking about health. I'm in the wrong one. Uh, let me see. Well, I'm seeing a lot of definitions. Uh, Minorities under international law. I am looking for minorities under the United States of America. Let me make sure I clarify that. Alright, here we go. Uh, that's a Wikipedia. Minorityrights.org. Never heard of you. Uh, oh, the census.gov. Here we go. This is what I was looking for. Uh, let me see. 
the chance that two people are chosen at random on this the right one background I want to know what minority is to the government uh So it looks like they're just telling me, okay, the following groups are used in diversity, diversity calculations, Hispanic or Latino, white alone, non-Hispanic. Uh, okay, so I am not looking at minorities right now. I want to find minorities. What does minority mean? Let me put this in. Okay, so this is by Carnell, the college. Okay, the term minority means American Indian, Alaskan Native, Black, not Hispanic origin, Hispanic, including persons of Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, and Central or South American origin, Pacific Islander or other ethnic group, underrepresented in science and engineering. Okay. So that's what they just said. Uh, so it looked like they're not saying white women when I'm. I've been looking at a couple different ones. I'm not seeing white woman being said, but from my understanding, they do include white women. I was trying to get a more specific. Let me see. So I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, and looks like everybody is saying what you would think, but they're not saying white women. Hmm. I'm going to have to ask one of my pals in government. What are the six? Okay, moving on. I've been on this for too long. Uh, the sizable investment announced by... I already read that. I already read that. Not to mention black owners. Uh, okay. Harris emphasized the historical context of American racial wealth gap as it relates to enterprise by highlighting the atrocities of Tulsa. Tulsa race massacre in which an angry white mob. So I read it, noting the nation's current low 
unemployment of 4.2%, with nearly 6 million jobs being added to the economy since January. The vice president added, we cannot take the growth for granted. Okay, so I read that. The Freedmen's Bank Forum is an annual conference that was instituted by former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew to address racial economic disparities. The forum gets its name from the Freedmen's Saving and Trust Company, a private savings bank chartered by Congress in 1865. Reconstruction is what it was called when they started that to collect deposits from the newly emancipated uh, communities. The Freedmen Bank opened 37 branches in 17 states, according to the National Archives, totaling 3.7 million assets, over 80 million today after inflation. However, the Freedmen's Bank ultimately collapsed less than a decade after it was founded due to the mismanagement by its executives. Also, because of racism, the KKK, and white supremacy, which is literally the reason why they were shut down. Um, so this article was being nice about it. I, I just wanted to tell the truth just then. Like, eh, let's be real. It was the white supremacist. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally... Okay, I'm about to mess up his name. He's an African, I believe. Adeyemo? Uh, Adeyemo? The first black person to serve in a role moderated a panel at the Freedmen's Bank Forum in which he noted people think about this as charity or donations when it's not, adding its econ economics. Investing in these communities makes sense from an economic standpoint. Adiyamo noted that the challenge now is scale. Panelists highlighted that in order to achieve such scale, it's also important to establish technology and data infrastructure to help support financial institutions like community uh, development financial institutions and minority development institutions as they provide funding to generate economic growth for black and minority owned enterprises. Okay, so I kind of like what I'm seeing, but at the same time, it's like minorities doesn't, when you use that term, especially when we uh, talk about it in the woke community and we notice certain stuff and how we have seen it been played in the past, minority usually means everybody else except for blacks. Usually blacks don't get enough, basically, and we're the ones that are hurt the most. But we'll see. Maybe they'll... Maybe the Democrats will pull it off and they will be able to um, give blacks access. Even though in the past, it hasn't always been so. Sarah Rosen Wartell, president of the Urban Institute, noted key findings in report from the Institute released on Tuesday to highlight challenges beyond simply providing capital such as capital deployment, particularly capital from private and philanthropic uh, sectors. Being capital ready is a huge issue for the businesses, the families, the firms, and neighborhoods. Too little yet of our attention as a country in the last decade has been focused on our infrastructure so that we can get to the financial programs and wartail said Wartell. She also pointed that regulatory programs oftentimes do not uh, disaggregate the data about the race of communities that are being served. Joseph Haskins, CEO of Harbor Bank Corporation, 
said another challenge for getting access to capital in urban communities is the phenomena of banking deserts. Um, the phenomena of banking deserts. Being capital ready is a huge issue for businesses. Blah, 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 blah. It was something I just read that I wanted to talk about real quick. But, uh, uh the term scale. See, that is big because we definitely need that in the black community because what happens with a lot of black businesses like they're businesses but a lot of times they're businesses that would be very hard to scale um technology helps scale um and when when we say scale we're talking about expanding expand your business so you can include hire more people um I've heard Dr. Boyce talk about it and other entrepreneurs, uh, business people or business types talk about creating systems. You create systems to um, for your business so you can um, put people in places, right? And you can go and do other things and things will still work even if you're not there because there are systems in place. Um, so, yeah. But let me get back to finish because I'm almost done with it. Uh, I'm going to play a little of her uh, speech or the form. They're calling it the Freedman Bank form, I believe. Um, Disproportionately, many of our constituents are left to go to fast money lenders, hot money lenders, check cash in places, and disproportionately spend resources that they can ill afford, which can be better used by their families, said uh, Hoskins. Hoskins thanked the Treasury Department for Harbor Bank's receiving of $71.2 million from the funds announced this week, saying, I'm delighted that we finally got the numbers that are realistic. He added, these dollars allow us to meet capital levels that the regulators, the regulators require, which allow us to lend more. All right. So that's the last of that article. This article was written by uh, Garen Keith Gaynor. I think that's how you said. Uh, sorry if I misspelled that first name uh, or mispronounced that last name. It says Gaynor. But anyway, uh, now on to the video. Good morning, everyone. Please have a seat. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. It is my great pleasure to be here with Secretary Yellen and with all of you. We're looking forward to a robust and in-depth conversation. And Secretary Yellen, I want to thank you for inviting me to share this after or this morning with you to have this very important discussion. And to everyone, there are many leaders in this room. It's a room full of leaders. I want to thank you for being here today and for joining us. Uh, you know, earlier this year, I welcomed Mother Viola Fletcher and her younger brother, Mr. Hughes Van Ellis, to my ceremonial office at the Executive Office Building. Mother Fletcher, as many of you know, is 107 years old, and her younger brother, Mr. Van Ellis, is 100 years old. 
So you want to make the best burger ever? Then make it. That means selling everything. Sorry, Colnette. And they both survived the Tulsa race massacre. Mother Fletcher and Mr. Van Ellis were just children when a white supremacist mob burned down black-owned homes and businesses and decimated the Greenwood District. But a hundred years later, the memory of that tragedy, the smoke in the streets, the piles of bodies, was fresh in their minds, as was the memory of the thriving community that they lost. By their account, by every account, the Greenwood District was a very special place, and I think we all know was a very intentional place. It was not the product of whim or fancy or circumstance. It was a design and intentional in that way. And it was designed and intended to be a community, a thriving community within a community. An economy in which black people supported one another, lift one another up, and modeled excellence. In which black people could determine their own future. Some of us refer to that as self-determination. To put equity firmly at the center of our economic policy. So I talk about that today because I believe we must draw from the lessons of Greenwood and Freedman's, of Sweet Auburn and Blaylock Van. We must be intentional. Here's what I know to be true. America is a nation that is driven by the ambition and the aspirations of her people. But I also know that in America today, deep racial disparities continue to hold people back from achieving all they can. Today, the wealth gap persists. Today, the homeownership gap persists. Today, access to capital is unequal. As one example, black entrepreneurs are three times more likely to report that a lack of access to capital negatively affects their profit margins. I believe that the actions we are taking and must take to address these disparities will define our nation's strength and economic strength in the 21st century. Our economy is growing faster than it has in decades. Unemployment is down to 4.2%, and nearly 6 million jobs have been added since January. As a nation, we cannot take this growth for granted, and we must make sure that everyone shares in this growth in order to sustain it. In a moment, the Secretary and I are going to sit down here and we're going to discuss some of the intentional actions that our administration is taking to lower costs for families and to remove barriers to success 
within all communities. As but one example, we are increasing access to capital by supporting community lenders, also known as CDFIs and MDIs. One of the last actions, in fact, that I took as a United States Senator was to team up with Senator Mark Warner, Leader Chuck Schumer, Senator Cory Booker, Senator Mike Crapo, Chairman Sherrod Brown, and Chairwoman Maxine Waters, who is here today. Together, we secured $12 billion for community lenders as part of the COVID-19 relief bill. This summer, and this summer, we released $1.25 billion of those dollars to, through our rapid response program. And we were very excited about that. The Secretary and I did that together with so many of the leaders who are here. And following up on that, today I'm very proud to announce that almost $9 billion is now available to increase lending to small businesses in underserved communities. And I'll say, yes, that's a lot of money. I'm going to go off script for a minute. Uh, yes, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of dough. But what we also intend to do is to look to you, the leaders in the private sector, to talk about how we can maximize the capacity of that infusion in a way that everyone is participating in the potential to exponentially grow that investment in our communities. But needless to say, these $9 billion will dramatically increase the work of more than 175 community lenders across our nation. This effort is close to my heart, and I know it's close to many of us, and it is certainly critical to our communities in every way, in terms of their potential, their capacity, and meeting their dreams with support and encouragement. Throughout the year, I have consulted with the most active community lenders in our nation, those who serve rural communities in Oregon and urban communities in California, including my hometown of Oakland, California. Those who serve low-income communities in the Mississippi Delta. Bill, I think you are here somewhere. Pouring capital into communities that are starved of it. Providing financial services to communities that lack those services entirely. Communities like Itabina, a town of 1,800 with a median income of $17,000. Communities filled with people with ambition, with aspirations, with dreams for themselves and their children and their community. I have consulted with many community lenders who serve tribal communities in the plains of South Dakota, where Native women are making quilts that are important to their community, knowing there is a market for it based on the culture and traditions of those communities, and who needed a community lender. They needed a lender. Want to build a business around your knowledge but not sure where to start? Kajabi state-of-the-art course creation tool. But it just so happens that the community lenders understand best 
the needs of these communities and see the potential then for growth. Community lenders understand the value in providing access to capital directly to these communities. They sit down with the folks in these communities. They listen to the folks in these communities. They identify with and understand these communities, and that's what makes them so successful. And because they do, they add significant value to these communities and our entire country. So here's the bottom line. I believe that when we unlock the economic power of every community in America, there is nothing we cannot achieve in America. When we unlock that power, our families will be more secure, our businesses will be more successful, and our nation will be more competitive. When every community reaches its full potential, so too does America. And so ultimately, this is about the nation we are and the nation we want to be. So in closing, when I spoke with Mother Fletcher and Mr. Van Ellis in June, it was clear how far we have come and how far we have yet to go. I promised them that we would keep working to fulfill the vision of the Greenwood District and the promise of America, that we would keep working to build a nation in which every person has the support they need to determine their own future. And that is exactly why we have all gathered here today to do just that. Thank you all. Thank you. And now I will turn it over. I will turn it over now to an extraordinary leader who has been for me a true partner in this effort, the great Secretary Janet Yellen. Thank you so much, Madam Vice President, and welcome everyone. We are honored to host you at Treasury today. This is the Freedmen's Bank Forum, and I know most of us are familiar with the history. Founded by Lincoln in 1865 to help newly freed slaves build wealth, the bank's books were in shambles by 1874, largely because of poor oversight by a Congress that had waning interest in Reconstruction. Frederick Douglass, who had agreed to be the bank's president, tried to save it. He deposited $10,000 of his own money. But the show of confidence didn't work. The bank failed, and more than 61,000 African Americans lost their savings. Douglas's biographer, David Blight, called the affair one of the great aspirations, but also one of the great tragedies of Reconstruction. We're here today because, in many ways, we're still leave, living with both that aspiration and that tragedy. The Vice President just described this very well. From Reconstruction to Jim Crow to the present day, 
our economy has never worked fairly for black Americans or really for any American of color. Well, since stepping foot in this building last January, we have tried to change that, to finally make good on the aspiration of the Freedmen's Bank by transforming how Treasury works. We've completed Treasury's first equity review, looking across the department and asking, where are our operations not as inclusive as they could be? We've brought on the most diverse leadership team in Treasury's history. Half of our senior appointees are people of color. And we've hired the department's first ever counselor on racial equity. If you haven't met Janice Bowdler, let Bowdler yet, you will in just a moment. Our most recent measure, though, is the news that the Vice President just mentioned. Through our Emergency Capital Investment Program, or ESIP, Treasury will be injecting nearly $9 billion into community development financial institutions and minority depository institutions. These CDFIs and MDIs serve communities that the financial sector historically has not served well. And most of the time, these are communities of color. If you're a black or Hispanic or Asian or a native entrepreneur, we know it's harder to get your hands on funding to open a shop or to keep the lights on or to meet customer demand. And this has been particularly true during the pandemic. In their recent small business credit survey, the Fed found that while roughly 40% of white-owned firms reported receiving all the non-emergency funding they sought last year, the number for Hispanic-owned firms was just half that, 21%. And for black-owned firms, it was just 13%. Now, contained in that 13%, is a woman named Brandy Shelton. I met Brandy a few months ago when I visited her tea shop in Atlanta. Just Add Honey is its name. Brandy owned the shop. She used to own three Just Add Honeys, in fact. But during the pandemic, when money was tight, she needed credit to keep her other locations afloat and no one would give it to her. Fiscal policy can be a complex thing. Sometimes it's very difficult to state with clarity and certainty how a particular program or statute will change someone's life. But that's not the case here. Because here it's very easy to connect policy with the personal. You can draw a straight line from the money we're injecting into high-performing CDFIs and other institutions to a tea shop in Atlanta. Because what this will do is prevent small business owners of color from closing two of their locations. And better yet, it will help people open two more. It will ensure that our markets no longer provide just a small fraction of businesses with the funding they need. Of course, one program is not enough to fully make up for the tragedy 
or make good on the aspirations of the Freedmen's Bank or the Greenwood District, which the Vice President spoke about. But it is a start, and you should know this is just one example of how we're implementing pandemic relief, with equity at the heart of things. The last thing I want to say is this. None of this is happening by default. And I'm so glad that Chairwoman Waters is here today because she helped push this program through Congress. But most... But most of all, Madam Vice President, I want to thank you because you helped design the ESIP legislation when you were still Senator Harris and you shepherded this program from a policy paper idea out into the world. Madam Vice President, thank you and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So with that, let me invite Janice Bowdler our new racial equity counselor who's going to moderate for us. Yeah. We'll share our home address for french fries. Did you know you could get five more ads? More ads. Here we go. Here we go. I cannot tell you how amazing it is to be on stage with two of my true sheroes. I spent the last two decades of my career advocating for people of color to be able to build a nest egg that will secure their retirement, that they can share with their children. And it is an incredible honor to join an administration that is centering equity, that is putting issues of economic justice, and equity at the heart of their agenda. Today we have with us clearly two people who you've already met who need no introduction, uh, who have been stalwart advocates for many years. I've had a chance to get to know uh, Secretary Yellen. Her work speaks for itself, decades of centering women and people of color in her work. And Madam Vice President, you may not remember this, but we had a chance to meet when you were A.G. Harris, uh, when you came to visit an UNIDOS affiliate, East Los Angeles Community Corporation, and we walked the streets of Boyle Heights talking with families who are at risk of losing their home to foreclosure. Mm -hmm. You simply cannot walk away from families who are at risk of losing everything through no fault of their own without feeling the weight of that tragedy. Mm -hmm. And so I know that for both of you, this comes from a place that is personal, that builds on decades of your experience. And so that's where I would like to start, actually. Um, and we'll start with you, Madam uh, Vice President. If you could share with us how you got into issues of economic justice and equity, what brings you to this work as one of our passionate leading advocates? Well, in many ways, I was born into it. Um, as many of you know, my parents were active in the civil rights movement, and I talk a lot about Thurgood Marshall being one of my heroes, and. And, and guiding lights in terms of the work I've chosen to do, but it was it was Dr. King, remember, who was organizing the sanitation workers, who was, and I think, frankly, I think many of us do, that was part of why he was assassinated, 
because he was starting to join intentionally the civil rights movement with the economic justice movement, in particular around organized labor and building a powerful coalition potentially, um, understanding that the economic justice piece is something all people in our country have experienced, depending on where they've grown up and the conditions in which they have. Um, A. Philip Randolph, another hero growing up, who of course organized the, the porters and, and was one of the first real um, incredibly forceful labor leaders because he was organizing a group of porters, professional and black men, who, you know, it is, is the challenge of organizing workers, but then organizing workers in a system where people were legally not treated as equal, in addition to in the workplace not treated as equal. Um, let's not forget Fannie Lou Hamer. Remember that she thought about how she would create, basically provide for farmers free pigs and finance that, which is about a capital investment, so that they can then grow the, the capacity of their farms and, by extension, their wealth and economic health and wealth. So these were the, these were very much um, in my childhood through my life, the examples of how you fight for justice. A big part of that is fighting for economic justice. And you mentioned, and I'll just talk briefly about this, um, but the, the foreclosure crisis. So when I was Attorney General, um, many of you may remember, I pulled California out of the negotiations with the big banks. It was very controversial at the time. I want to again acknowledge Congresswoman Maxine Waters um, because you stood with me. And um, in the foreclosure crisis that started to really become evident around 2006-07, let's remember that black and brown home buyers were on average charged twice as much in terms of interest rates. And so by no coincidence, after I became Attorney General in 2011 and started tracking the foreclosure crisis, you will know that black and brown homeowners then were twice as likely to be foreclosed upon. It's a very blatant cause and effect. <laughs> and so throughout my career and, and my life, I have seen vivid examples of this issue. And Madam Secretary, I've heard you talk about what it was like to come back to work from maternity leave at a time when maybe that wasn't a common practice in the field of economics. Um, well, absolutely. So my son was born in 1981. My husband and I both worked. And we realized that if um, we were both going to stay um, employed and have careers, it would be necessary to um, find find affordable childcare. <laughs> now, fortunately, we were able to find it and we could afford to um, hire someone who took wonderful care of our son. But what I realized from that experience and from all the work that um, I've done in labor economics and um, we've done here reviewing the childcare situation, is that uh, childcare in the United States is simply unaffordable for the vast um, majority of working families. It consumes, for those who get it, something like 13% of their income. 
and it holds many women, particularly women, um, back so that they're not able to advance their careers. And uh, in addition, it's a very, in part because families simply can't afford that, it's an occupation that pays very low wages and has very poor working conditions. And many, especially women of color, are employed doing that and trapped in jobs that are tremendously important to us um, as an economy, as a community, um, but really not able to make ends meet. So um, we'll talk, I think, later about policy, but I would say that um, this administration, uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris are very focused on changing the situation. And our Build Back Better um, legislation, which is before Congress now, would make a, an enormous change to improve this. Mm -hmm. Childcare would become affordable. Um, for most families, no more than 7% of their income. It would provide two years of universal early childhood education, which is not only important for families to promote their ability to, to work, but also for children. These investments um, have been shown to make a great difference to the success of, of children. Um, and child tax credit, which is tremendously important um, in making sure that families can support their children. Sort of makes us wonder how many other Secretary Yellens might be out there, <laughs> but for the ability to get uh, child care, to have the kind of investment uh, that has been more limited in our communities, uh, we, we have unrealized potential that is left on the table. And so we know that COVID uh, exacerbated uh, health inequities. We knew that that was already there, but so were pre-existing racial economic inequities, structural racism. And that's why as we think about recovery, it's important that we center equity as part of that agenda. Otherwise, we're just going to continue to move along, kind of reinforcing in an, a gap that exists. And as has been alluded to, the administration has done so much on this already. So as we come to the close of our, our first year, can you believe it? It's been uh, nearly a full year. What are uh, some of the administration's uh, biggest accomplishments? Well, there are many. There are actually many. I would say an overriding accomplishment has been, and it'll. I think the, this group will appreciate it, we have really taken the time to sit back and think about what will provide the greatest return on our investments. Starting out with any new project management software usually feels something like this. Where do you even start? And we have decided that investing in America's workers, investing in people, investing in families will yield the greatest return on our investment. And so you can look at everything from, as the secretary said, the child tax credit. Um, we know that as of today, the latest numbers I saw, we have raised 40% of America's children out of poverty. Think about the return on that investment. That's profound. Yeah. 
we have been operating on the principle. I did an event last week, which was the first time that we to the White House stage. And we did that event because, as the New York Fed has pointed out, healthy economies require healthy mothers and healthy children. And so paying attention to the fact that we spend billions of dollars a year as a nation when we don't invest in maternal health, when we don't recognize that black women are three to four times more likely to die in connection with childbirth, when we don't recognize that when we're looking at native women, they're twice as likely. Rural women are 60% more likely. So we are thinking about where do you get the greatest yield for your investment? What we did at the beginning with the American Rescue Plan, in addition to the child tax credit, was about recognizing that part of the economic lifeblood of all communities are our small businesses. That they are not only part of the economic lifeblood, if you connect a thriving economy with a thriving community, and understand that our small business leaders are also civic leaders, they are also community leaders, and what we did with the PPP, program, and also what we did to recognize how previous outreach to, in particular, minority and women-owned businesses have not worked, and so let's do a better job of engaging them. And the long-term goal there was that through what we did to better engage in a rescue approach would be what we will do to engage in terms of a continuing investment approach. So these are some of the many things. I did an event yesterday um, in Maryland on electric vehicles. I'm very excited about them. I believe that the future of transportation is electric. And let's take a look at, in particular, I'm very um, excited, I must confess, about electric school buses. Um, yes, I went to school on a yellow school bus. And so I do have, I have good memories of that. I hope you all do too. Um, but here's the other piece of it, at least pre-COVID, 25 million children in America a day go to school on those school buses, breathing those toxic fumes from diesel buses. Studies have shown what that will do to impact their ability to learn. And who are the children who go to school on the bus? Mm -hmm. Usually the children who don't have the neighborhood school, mm -hmm. children who don't have, their parents may not have a car to take them to school. We know who is likely demographically to go to school on that bus. We know demographically who is likely to drive that bus every day, also breathing those fumes. So I could go down a long list, but I think that the, the general point that I would make, that I know the secretary and I both, in the midst of very long days, um, that gets us going every day, is knowing that we are really investing in the people of our country, and we know there's going to be a great return on that investment. Yeah, we'll share our home address for french fries. Did you know you could get five more matches if you give your social... Um, and um, Madam Secretary, we are living through other seismic shifts in our economy as well. For example, the way that climate change is affecting the economies of Native nations and disrupting the financial experiences of other communities of color. So you've mentioned some of this in your opening remarks, but say a little bit more about how Treasury is centering the most vulnerable in our work to rebuild the American economy. Well, thanks, Janice. Let me just say the Treasury has been focused like a laser on 
racial equity since day one. And um, we've conducted a top to bottom review of what we do, both internally in terms of our own hiring and promotion plans, and also in terms of all of the policies and programs that we implement. And um, it was my pleasure, Janice, to bring you on as our first ever racial equity counselor. I'm thrilled that you joined us to make this your mission to focus systematically on everything that Treasury does. And we're also establishing a new racial equity advisory uh, committee, and we'll be making appointments to that soon. But. Um, the Vice President talked about the various programs that we have in place that are intended in the future to build back better, to promote racial equity. Treasury also has the enormous privilege and responsibility of implementing almost a trillion dollars worth of programs under the American Rescue uh, Plan. And we have very intentionally focused in our management of these programs on racial equity, on making sure that help gets, as Congress intended, to those who need it most, and that the rules that we set up and parameters for running this program don't disadvantage the people that these programs are intended to help. You mentioned um, Madam Vice President, the PPP program, which we initially found um, just wasn't getting money into communities of color. And um, when we began to manage that program, we focused very much on ensuring that CDFIs would have access, those who were best able to get the money into these communities, that they would have privileged access to the funding to make sure that help got there. And really, this has been true in our management of all of the programs. Just to give an example, you mentioned the child tax credit, which has had an enormous, a 40% reduction in poverty rates is just extraordinary. But we have to make sure that it gets to all those who are eligible. Yeah. And um, this was something that it wasn't an easy program to implement, but it was relatively easy um, to get relief, to get monthly checks to people who file tax returns. But um, there are many low-income yeah. people, particularly in communities of color, that aren't required to fire, file tax returns, and they're eligible for that credit. And it's a lot more work to make sure they know about it, that they have the tools to apply for it. And that's the kind of thing that we've been focused on. Um, emergency rental assistance, another program. Well, you know, we want to make sure that these programs, that the money gets to people who really qualify. And you could imagine establishing criteria that, well, you have to have um, five years worth of W-2s and rental contracts and canceled checks to show that you're eligible for this support. And if we ran the program that way, probably very few That's right. um, That's right. home 
uh, renters who were really in need, about to lose the roofs over their heads, would end up getting help. So, and that would be particularly true in in, in communities of color. So, we've focused in our implementation on um, self-attestation and ways to make sure that in our implementation, we're not excluding the people who most intended to benefit. And I could give you a lot more examples, but I want to say that it's been a conscious goal to make sure that everything is implemented so that um, money goes to the communities and helps the people um, for whom it's really intended. And if I could just add something, what the Secretary has been doing throughout her career and as Secretary of the Treasury is also recognizing that some of these designs were just designed not to benefit the people we're talking about. Or, you know, there's a better way to say this, it was designed to benefit other people. <laughs> it, it, it was designed to benefit people who have access, who have information, who, right, who already have capital and then build and grow that. And so it's not only about a state of mind in terms of this new approach, it's about restructuring a system. Yes. And I think it's really important to, to, to understand that that's part of the work that, that is at play, is to think about how we actually can and must restructure these systems so that they work for everyone. And again, that brings us always back to the importance of CDFIs. Absolutely. I think what's incredible here and what you both are touching on is that we are facing structural challenges that require structural solutions. And this administration has put forward bold, once-in-a-generation kinds of investments that are completely reimagining the way that our economy is going to work for communities of color. We know, <laughs> sitting here at this table, that we can't do that work alone. And so I want to pause for just a moment and take in this room, because we have here with us in the room and on our live stream a really incredible brain trust of leaders from corporate America, leading advocacy, nonprofits, academics, think tanks. I think we have what we need in this room to really solve the challenges that we're facing. So, Madam Vice President, like, what would you say to folks here? How can they get on board and support our shared goal of eradicating the racial wealth divide? How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> well, I'll start with this, to your point about who is in the room. And the Secretary mentioned this, um, and we all know part of the challenge of, of ensuring equal access and equitable distribution of resources is we, the people need to know their rights. They need to know what's available to them, and they also need to have the tools to navigate a system and the information about what that system is. Uh, and so that is about using our collective voice, hopefully always fueled with the goal of increasing the coalition, so that we can improve information and access. You know, there is a reality of what we are also dealing with at this moment in our country and in our world, which is informed, I think, most recently by the pandemic and the extraordinary loss that people have experienced loss of life, loss of jobs, loss of normalcy. And, and, and there is a feeling also combined with a number of other factors about whether folks can trust the system. Do you love Gantt charts? 
Here's how easily you can build one in ClickUp. Let's map out the tasks for your Gantt chart in this list. Perfect. Whether they can believe in the system, whether it is working for them, whether it sees them. And I do believe one way, one way to address that is to make sure that we are always empowering folks about their rights and what is available to them so that they don't have to experience things happening to them. They can actually exercise, as I said earlier, self-determination. And so I would, I would ask this group to, to let us continue to work together around how we talk about what we need to do. I'm going to bring up another point, which may not seem connected with this topic, but is. And that's voting rights. You know, I just, I was a little late coming here because I was with the president in the Oval Office. He and I go through the, the daily brief, the confidential daily brief every morning, classified information about threats to our national security and, and threats around the world. One of the threats that I think everyone is, is aware of is this really increasing debate around the globe about autocracies versus democracies. Which is more efficient? Which is more effective? Which can survive? which is but an experiment that may have a shelf life of a couple of centuries. And I think we would all agree that when we are talking about free and fair markets, when we are talking about investing in the capacity of people, investing in innovation, encouraging all of that, that democracies are, are, are very, very nurturing, imperfect though they may be, for that kind of spirit and approach and growth and strength. And so when we think about something like this ongoing blatant challenge to one of the strongest and most important pillars of a democracy, which is free and fair elections, I would ask us to think about the connection between that and the conversation we're having right now. Because our democracy is being threatened by certain particular things, including this attack on voting rights. And we should see the natural progression of where this could end up on many issues, including the issue of whether we have a society that allows small businesses to thrive, communities to grow economically. There is, a, there is a relationship, and I believe it is a direct relationship. And so please participate in helping us fight to save our democracy. And that includes, as a most um, evident and current issue, fighting for the right of all people, whoever they vote for, to vote. Madam Secretary, I'd love to give you the last word. Uh, what can we say to the, our audience here? Well, let, let me also say our objective is to partner with everyone in this room. Um, the government, the Biden administration, is very focused on using new resources to um, inject lending capacity in uh, businesses in communities of color, but um, this is not something that we can accomplish on our own without the help of everyone in this room. Um, we're injecting some capital to support institutions that have a capacity to make a big difference in their communities, but um, 
we need you to co-invest with us to provide resources um, that will leverage those investments to really make a meaningful difference um, in, in these communities. And we need so much more that you can do. Um, and I've had the pleasure of discussing this with some of you uh, this morning, business leaders who are here today. You can help train people to um, work and to be employable in the businesses that are going to be created or um, in America's businesses today. Um, you can promote diversity and inclusion, making sure that leadership starts from the top and that you, you focus on this in your own organizations. You can provide technical training and resources to the CDFIs and MDIs that we're investing in and to the organizations, to the companies that they're going to fund to make sure that they're successful. You can be the customers of those companies to make sure that they have business opportunities and that these investments can scale. And we need to work together to make sure that all of our resources are going to support um, viable and self-sustaining improvements in these communities. Mm -hmm. I want to, yes. I want to thank you all for joining us as we commemorate uh, Freedmen's Bank. And uh, while we are committed to this being an annual event, we don't want this to be a once-a-year dialogue. We want to be in conversation with you throughout the year ahead. So for those of you who are joining us on live stream, thank you much for joining us. We're going to take a break for lunch. We will be back around 1.35 uh, for closing remarks for, with Ambassador Rice. I hope that you are able to reconvene with us then. For those here in the room, please join me in thanking uh, Madam Vice President, Madam Secretary. Thank you. Thank And that's is all. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to y'all next time. Peace.